everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 103. I have a special guest for you again this week here to talk specifically about the pests, specifically the emerald ash borer. That's right, folks. I've brought a doctor onto the show. But first, I wanted to address a few things that are very relevant to this conversation, some feedback about bugs and a question about bugs. And both the feedback and the question come from loyal patrons of the show. So here's my uh, not so subtle attempt to say, hey, be one of the cool kids and sponsor the show. Go to patreon.com slash lumber update and your questions go right to the front of the line. You basically just get to be one of the cool kids. And you know, for those Walnut Tier subscribers, they're getting featured species stickers every single month. In fact, in the next episode, I'll be uh, introducing the featured species for July. Any guesses what it is? I'll give you a hint. It's one of the species that's mentioned in this episode. That's as close as I'm going to get you. Anyway, please keep the questions coming, folks. There's some great questions uh, about bugs. Many of them got answered in this episode. So if you've sent in questions about bugs, stay tuned for the rest of this. But of course, send those questions in. Go to lumberupdate.com. There's a contact form there. Uh, go to lumberupdate at gmail.com. Send an email to that and you'll be able to get to me as well. Um, certainly you can find me at Lumber Update Show on Instagram and ask your questions there. I look forward to hearing them. So a little bit of industry news comes from Ryan and it's a link to an article uh, at science.org about beech leaf disease. And it's something that doesn't get a lot of play, but it's currently causing quite a bit of alarm in the Northeast because there's a lot of beech trees in the Northeast. I was actually just recently in Maine and just about everywhere you look, there are beech trees. In fact, I read a number that said something like 27 or 28% of the forest in Maine is beach. Vermont is even higher. As you move a little bit further south and west into the mountains there, you've got even more beach trees. Well, beach leaf disease is an issue being caused by uh, a worm, a little nematode, that is uh, causing the leaves to rot and actually is being predicted to actually kill off the trees in about four to six years. Another one of those kind of alarming blights. It's still relatively new. People are trying to figure it out. Certainly is going after the younger, more vulnerable trees, but it's also being found to attack some of the adult trees. This actually comes up in our episode later today with the expert that I have. So Ryan, very uh, timely article. I'll post a link to that article. I encourage you guys to, to go check it out. Which brings me to a question uh, that was sent in uh, from a couple people on the EAB. Uh, Zach, Peter, Jonathan, uh, and some more. And unfortunately, I didn't write them all down. But um, several of the folks who said that I'm maybe misrepresenting the emerald ash borer on the show, that it's a, it's a really big threat and it's killing off the trees. So uh, let me just read one of the emails I got. The, the life cycle leads me to believe that they, the emerald ash borer, would never infest lumber, probably not even live edge slabs because they are no longer alive. They barely even scratch the surface of the sapwood. So other than killing the tree, they don't have a negative impact on the quality of the wood as far as I can tell. Um, the signs of EAB here in the Northeast have been pretty extreme these past few years with patches of woods looking devastated because 90 to 100% of that stand are dead. When talking with the local municipalities about the possibility of getting trees from them, it was always a hard no. They transport them to a specific site for quarantine and mulching. The heat of the composting mulch is what kills them, not the mulching process itself. And I really wanted to bring up this email because it's like, yeah, read my mind. We touch on every single one of these points 
in my interview. So without further ado, I wanna introduce Dr. Jeremy Sloan from Bartlett Tree Experts, who, wow, this was a fantastic conversation. A little bit of a depressing conversation, but I really, really enjoyed talking to Jeremy. Um, this was definitely an intellectual geek out. So Jeremy, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you're not aware of Bartlett Tree Experts, certainly this is not meant to be a sponsored episode, but Dr. Sloan certainly showed us why they are more than just a tree removal company. In fact, I don't think they ever want to be known as a tree removal company. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Sloan to the podcast. Okay, I've had a lot of people who've asked questions about the emerald ash borer and certainly a lot of people who are concerned about the fate of the ash tree. So I have done my best to answer it from a lumber perspective and from a, um, so we say an amateur entomologist. Now let, let's correct that. I fly fisherman entomologist perspective and I keep coming up short. So I've got Dr. Jeremy Sloan from Bartlett Tree Experts here on the show. Jeremy is an entomologist, a real one with a PhD attached to it. So welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So let's talk um, a little bit about your background. As I said, you are an entomologist. How did you uh, fall into that field of study and how did you end up um, working for a tree company? Yeah, so actually in my undergrad, I was in for biology and kind of found okay. myself working in a honeybee behavior lab. Um, and that kind of is what got me started down the path of entomology. Um, took me a while to figure out kind of where I wanted to go with that, but I ended up doing all my grad work out at NC State. Um, had a lot of fun, worked primarily in agriculture, which I kind of thought was you know, maybe the more obvious thing to do with entomology. I hadn't had much experience, you know, working with landscapes or trees. And after spending some time in that, I was, you know, trying to figure out where I wanted to go with my career and found a really cool opportunity with Bartlett Tree. And the really interesting thing is uh, it makes you start to realize the value of having trees in the landscape and what that kind of means, um, especially coming from more of an agriculture background where you think that's hmm. the predominant concern of maybe what I could use my time with. But it's been really fascinating to kind of see the different side of things from a more landscape or forest perspective. Right. Um, yeah. Then, the, the, the number one, um, the number one solution, the most effective solution to combat uh, climate change is trees. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah. we're looking for all these options and trying to figure out ways to sequester carbon. And it's like, um, they kind of already figured it out. Like we don't, all we got to do is plant some more trees. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, it's easy to take it for granted. I mean, we got trees all around us and you walk past them and don't really think about it too much. But, you know, the shade and the value they provide just from being there is easy to overlook, but something I think people really do appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that's fascinated me is the, well, certainly ecology on a, on a grander sense. But when you get down into the invertebrate ecology, everything from, you know, fungi, but to the bugs and, of course, the spores and the fungi that are on the bores, or, or excuse me, on the, the borers, on the bugs, um, all of that stuff can be actually incredibly helpful. All we ever hear about are the bad ones, you know, the Dutch elm <laughs> disease and powder post beetle and and uh, the chestnut blight. And well, and here we are talking about uh, the emerald ash borer. So the, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot of helpful stuff. Um, and a lot of the trees actually really rely upon that. Like there's a network of support um, for the trees and the trees supporting, um, a bunch of other, uh, organisms and plants and, and animals alike. It's really very fascinating stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's a constant arms race. So, I mean, it's really interesting that we have all these pests, you know, and the trees and, you know, in certain areas are adapted to deal with some of these pests. And then you've got other insects that are kind of destined to attack those pests. And it's this constant back and forth between all the different groups and all the different trophic levels. And it's pretty sure. interesting to see. And, and really, that's one of the things that I like about Bartlett is, I mean, it's it really is scientific tree care. They spend a lot of time and effort and money and trying to make sure that what we're doing is appropriate, you know, that we know what we're talking about and that we're able to try to address these problems as quickly as possible. Um, and right. when I first started at Bartlett, I actually worked in the diagnostic lab, which was really fascinating. So we get, you know, samples from our offices throughout the U.S. And, you know, we take them under the microscope. We do whatever we need to do um, with the DNA to figure out, you know, what pests they're seeing and what's the most appropriate way to move forward to manage it without having any kind of or at least, you know, reducing any kind of off target impacts and minimal other impacts to the environment. That's fantastic. So um, for those that aren't aware, uh, Bartlett Tree Experts or Bartlett.com, it's B-R-T-L-E-T-T.com. Um, I, I will admit, well, first of all, um, I've developed a few websites in my time. I am a director of marketing for a lumber company, after all. Um, one of the things that's wonderful, if you go to Bartlett.com, they are fantastic at making you feel like that they are a local company. Like I'm here in Bel Air, Maryland, and I would swear that your office is down the street. Um, it's really, it's very, very tricky. I, I do appreciate that. But, but Bartlett is a nationwide company. And I had always, I've seen your trucks around and I've always seen your trucks in the context of they're there taking down a tree. So I've always thought of them as one of those tree removal companies. So help me dispel this myth. There is so much more to Bartlett. What can you, can you give me the elevator pitch of what Bartlett tree experts actually is? Yeah, absolutely. And really, we don't really like to do removals. That's not really what we're in the business. Of. <laughs> right. There's um, the real irony. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly we do pruning and any kind of, you know, tree and shrub work, things of that nature, um, maintenance wise. But the other caveat to it is plant health care, whether that be, you know, the cultural practices that help make your plants less stressed and therefore less likely to be attacked um, or the remedial things where you've got an infestation of something and you need to manage it so that it doesn't, you know, cause huge aesthetic problems or even death of the tree or shrub in some cases. Um, so a lot of what we do is figuring out what pests you've got, how to handle them, and then figuring out what kind of program we can put you on to to make sure that problem doesn't persist. Um, and our approach is definitely more of an IPM approach, which is something I'm very familiar with from the agriculture perspective. Um, at least from agriculture, it's all based on money. So at what point does the damage of the pest cause you an economic loss? Um, right. In more of a landscape setting, it's a little more aesthetic based, but the same kind of approach of trying to keep the plants healthy, managing the pests in the best way possible. And keeping the landscapes looking nice. Very nice. So uh, certainly I've brought you here to talk about the Emerald Ash Borer. Before I dive too much into that, can you characterize um, what what is the, the, what are the biggest pests that you're dealing with now? Like who, who are the biggest offenders? Who are hanging on the wall of the post office? <laughs> well, see, it's actually interesting because with us being kind of scattered throughout the U.S., we've got different problems in different areas. So you've got things mm -hmm. like the spotted lanternfly up toward the northeast. hasn't made its way as far south as it might be able to. Um, but in contrast to something like emerald ash borer, that's not really a tree-killing pest. It's more of a nuisance pest. Yeah. Um, so it can make things a little nasty or inconvenient, but it's not necessarily going to kill your tree outright. Um, and that tends Actually, to be the case with a lot of the problems we have is they're not necessarily right. tree killers. They're just additive stress factors. I'm so glad you said that because I've had a lot of people who've, who've written in asking about spotter and lanternfly and kind of kind of being alarmist. And it's always been my understanding that nuisance, like you just said, is the, the better way to characterize that than, than tree killer. I feel like a lot of people are, are running scared because we just hear it all the time, you know, and everybody's like, oh, my God, it's the next chestnut blight. You know, and it's like, just mm -hmm. calm down. 
Yeah, anyway, but I mean, sorry. if you see aph- well, I mean, if you see aphids or something on your plant, you know, sure that's a nuisance. Maybe they're going to stress it, be a little gross. But the thing with spotted lanternfly is you might have you know hundreds or thousands of these quite large insects on your tree, and it can be startling. So from like a visual perspective, I mean, it it can look like a huge problem, even if they maybe aren't going to kill your tree. It it can be very startling. <laughs> right. Right. So who are some of the other offenders? Um, I mean, really, there's all sorts of things that kind of come and go through cycles. We've got different moths that, you know, in the caterpillar stage can cause tremendous defoliation with outbreaks. So like we've got um, spongy moth, which was formerly gypsy moth, um, that kind of has outbreak populations in the Northeast. And same thing in forested settings can cause really, you know, large scale devastation to huge swaths of areas. Um, I was living in New Jersey during one of those gypsy moth outbreaks. (laughs) And it was middle of summer and it looked like winter. It was just scary. No leaves anywhere. That was it can happen very quickly as well. So it's, it is also kind of a startling situation. <laughs> um, one of the more interesting ones that we're dealing with lately is something called crepe myrtle bark scale. Um, and that's one that is a, a real issue because while it may not kill crepe myrtles, you know, if it prevents them from flowering because they're stressed, the, I mean, the whole purpose of people planting crepe myrtles is generally for the big flashy showy flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, so then all of a sudden your trees have this sooty mold, like black coating all over everything. They're not really pushing out as many flowers or foliage. So it quickly kind of go downhill. And I mean, eventually you might have some other things that could come in and kill it. But again, while it's not killing it outright, it's certainly not helping. Well, and, um, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know that much about crepe myrtle other than I have two of them planted on the side of my house, but if they don't flower, that's the reproductive cycle. Like there's a lot of other stuff, right. That, that mm-hmm. can be affected by the lack of flowering. Um, now I know yeah. like, like the Japanese flowering cherry, most of those are actually sterile, like the double bloom, the double blossom. So that's truly just there for show, at least in my mm. poor botany understanding, maybe crepe <laughs> myrtle is in some way the same way, but I would think the bigger issue, I mean, yes, we want it to be pretty. You plant the crepe myrtle cause you want it to be pretty. But to me, the bigger issue is if it doesn't flower, like there's some pretty big repercussions of that, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you also have the factor of, you know, those nectar and pollen resources are useful for a lot of insects, not just pollinators, but a variety of other things may be reaching out to that plant, you know, when other things may not be in bloom. Um, and then things like seeds are a valuable food source for a lot of critters. So, I mean, you mm-hmm. could think of something like, you know, hemlock woolly adelgid, where it starts to kill hemlock trees. And then you have these you know, cascading effects across trophic levels because you all of a sudden don't have, you know, habitat, you don't have food. Um, right. So even if the tree itself is having trouble, you also have these effects on other, you know, non-target you know, different organisms as well. Sure. Those are actually, it's one of the things that has always fascinated me and it, it's fascination of the abomination truly, but the <laughs> cascading effect, um, when you look at, I, I was just reading a story the other day about, um, uh, a tilia, a, a basswood lime and, um, the bees that were, uh, the, they particularly like the, the flowering parts of the basswood tree. But there was also, there was another bug in there. Maybe it was a mosquito of some sort or um, that was causing a lot of, um, uh, gosh, I'm misremembering the story, but it was, it was around a parking structure and it was causing a lot of like sap and things to be dropped on people's cars. Um, and yeah. there were lots of bugs. So they said, well, let's come in and fix that. And they killed all these bugs, but then they also ended up killing like all of these bees at the same time, which then spiraled into like another um, fungus having issues and another bug having issues. And it was just this ridiculous, like <laughs> downstream effect that was, as I say, truly fascinating to see how interconnected it all was. But it, 
utterly horrifying at the same time. Like one guy went out and sprayed a parking structure and caused this massive cascade. And we've even seen, um, oh, there was a story the other day about like uh, a frog that wasn't growing up, like the tadpoles weren't growing up um, strongly and fast enough to mature into frogs to kind of get out of the the um uh there's a word for a pond that doesn't stay a pond all year round but like it dries up certain times of the year and these tadpoles have to grow up and turn into the frogs before the pond dries up so or they die and because they were not able to feed on their they 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 were in a nutrient poor environment so they didn't grow fast enough and they were in a nutrient poor environment because of a fungal infestation of a willow tree Maybe it was wrong. It was a willow tree, but it was like there was three trees deep that was causing this that resulted in poor fungus here, which resulted in fewer bugs here, which resulted in weaker tadpoles, which uh, created greater predation. And it was like, this is nuts. Like it's so unbelievably interconnected in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> kind of makes you afraid to do anything. <laughs> yeah, know, well, going I mean, back in time and stepping on a butterfly, and now Hitler's president. You know, it's, oh my god. Well, I mean, and absolutely, and it's the same kind of thing when you're thinking about management. You know, the choices that you make or the different options you have are going to still have those different effects on the different ecologies that are happening at different levels. So you kind of have to consider, you know, what's the most important thing. So in the case of like ash, for instance, too, it's you know, if you don't protect them, they may die. Um, but if you do protect them, are there going to be unintended consequences and all those rippling out effects, um, are from the whole process of the tree being infected or infested with whatever pest you may have. And then the management side of it as well. Right. Right. So let's, let's talk about the emerald ash borer, um, specifically. Um, can you walk me through kind of the bug and, and the life cycle and, and, and what it's actually doing that is hurting the ash trees? Yeah. So what ends up happening is they lay eggs kind of on the outside of the bark. And that usually happens sometime around April or May, kind of depending on the temperature and where you are. Um, But ultimately, once those eggs hatch, the larvae bore through the bark and get into the layers kind of right below that dead tissue where you have the Mm -hmm. phloem and xylem. So all of that like living nutrient rich area. And they start boring through there. Yeah, exactly. And what they're doing is just eating all that nutrient rich rich tissue and then consequently disrupting the flow of those nutrients from the ground up. So normally the tree would supply all of its energy from the ground, pull it up to the upper you know, layers of the canopy and then kind of distribute it out. But once you have that damage in that vascular system, that process can no longer happen. Um, so you could imagine on a small tree, you know, a little bit of feeding can be really devastating because it might be a huge percentage of the actual circumference, whereas larger trees may be a little more robust. But eventually, if you disrupt enough of those channels, the tree just can't get nutrients up any longer. Right. So how is it actually disrupting it? Is it an instance where the tree is compartmentalizing or creating like uh, tyloses to, to block it? Like what's actually causing the block of the yeah. xylem and phloem? So it's physically being eaten and removed. So what used to be the xylem and phloem has actually been eaten, and then the waste of the insect is actually what remains. So in some cases where the bark will fall away, you can see these big serpentine paths where the the larva itself is actually feeding through the tissue. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's actually consuming that. Wow. And then they'll ultimately like just pupate inside of there as well and then emerge as adults. And then the adults will feed on the foliage. But, I mean, as you could imagine, foliage is – kind of a disposable part of the tree. So if some of the foliage gets eaten, it's usually not a problem. It's that consecutive years of really significant defoliation that causes problems. But for the ash trees, it's absolutely the bigger issue is the larvae that are boring through that vascular system. 
Sure. Yeah. I imagine, you know, without, without the vascular system, the, the tree's not going to foliate <laughs> very much anyway. So, uh, wow. Absolutely. So this is, this is like when I was trying to get rid of ivy on the side of my, uh, the, the brick wall of my house. And I just basically mm-hmm. cut it off at the ground and the ivy died above it because there was no more nutrient coming up from the ground. Absolutely. That's, now imagine if you would cut like yeah. just, yeah. Well, imagine if you would cut just a little bit of that vine, you know, the other half of it or whatever may have survived for a little longer, it may not have thrived, but you might not kill it outright. But when you kill right. it, you know, completely by cutting it entirely, that's, what's going to do it in. And that's kind of the thing that we see with, with EAB and ash trees is, you know, by the time you're seeing symptoms, a significant amount of the vascular system may be damaged because right. it takes a little bit of time for that damage to become apparent once, um, the actual injury has occurred below the bark. So, um, how does the layman, like, what are we looking for? What, how do we identify these symptoms? Yeah. So, okay. Again, so initially you're probably not going to see much. So it might be that there's a larva in there feeding, you know, and eventually you'll start to see some thinning and dieback in the upper canopy. And it tends to start in the upper reaches first and work its way down again, because, you know, it's trying to transport nutrients up. So those farthest away tissues are the ones that are most impacted. Um, but you'll see that thinning throughout the canopy. Um, sometimes you'll start to see the epicormic shoots around the base. Um, occasionally they come out of the trunk, but you could kind of think of that as the tree's last ditch effort to push out some new foliage to try to recover from the damage that it has higher up. Right. Um, That's so usually a sign shoots. that a tree is stressed, right? There's something going Absolutely. on. It's trying to get, you know, um, it's trying to photosynthesize somewhere, right? Absolutely. And I mean, and that can happen from any number of stressors, but if you're seeing thinning in the canopy and, you know, the epicormic shoots somewhere on the tree, there's a good chance that there's something in there causing a significant amount of stress and problems for the tree. Okay. Um, and then sometimes so, you can see the little exit holes of the adults. They kind of have a nice little D shape. So they're fairly uh, characteristic for this particular pest, as well as the galleries of the larva. Um, but oftentimes they're pretty high up in the canopy, so they can be harder to find in some cases. Sure. Or do you ever get situations where the bark is actually coming away from the tree? It will do that. Um, so, I mean, trees are very good at compartmentalizing and healing over wounds. So if it's not, you know, a, a significant number of larvae or this is damage that happened sometime in the past, um, the tree will start to push out that response growth. Um, and in some cases, because it's below the surface, that'll push the bark up a little bit and you'll see cracks and splits. Um, and in cases where the infestations are heavier, you may have bark actually peeling away. And those are the cases right. where you tend to see the galleries below. Yeah. It sounds like at that point, things are in pretty dire shape too. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, how do you, how do you treat it? Like uh, you, you get a call and somebody suspects that they have an infestation. What are, what are your mm-hmm. steps? What's your triage like? Triage. Sorry, I made an unintentional joke there. <laughs> And before we get too far into that, usually the way that we approach pests is, you know, some cases you might do preventative management where it's like, okay, you know, this pest is very common. You prevent it ahead of time with whatever treatment may be necessary. Um, And in some cases you have remedial management where, okay, you've got aphids on this plant. You know, you make an application to manage those after they're already there. Um, Mm -hmm. With the case of EAB, you know, we know this kills ash trees. Uh, Ultimately, if they get infested and you do nothing about it, it's going to kill the tree. Um, so a lot of the times if you're in an area where, you know, EAB is present, even if you're not maybe in a huge outbreak year, um, generally preventative management is going to be the play. Um, and you have a couple different options. There are some products, um, that you can do soil drenches with, um, and that's where you would, you know, mix your solution and pour it into the soil and the trees can take it up through the root system. Um, most of those are the neonics, which sometimes get a really bad rap. Um, and actually several states mm-hmm. have banned those products, but, DDT um, essentially, right? Neonicotines? Uh, 
Not exactly. It's it's definitely a little different, but it's Sorry, systemic that's a bad in the word, plant. I know. <laughs> Not allowed to say DDT. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting because when you put these products in the ground or into the tree, they get distributed more thoroughly by the tree itself through the water system. So it's an easy way of getting it into the tree and getting it well distributed. Um, but just because of the use of them and the potential off-target impacts, they've been one that's been under a lot of scrutiny. Sure. Um, and maybe rightfully so. But at the same time, um, it's interesting that the legislation in the few states where they are banned, they actually leave exemptions for invasive pests like EAB. Um, uh-huh. Because you have to be very careful if you're only going to use, you know, there are some other products I can talk about in a second. But if you use one chemistry for too long, you run the risk of the insect developing resistance. And then sure. you have a real problem. Right. Um, now, that's this, one of the options is, this is the just soil making, Is this just making the xylem and phloem taste bad, or is it actually killing the bug? It will kill them, yeah. So okay. they'll still try to attack the tree, but once they actually ingest the, the pesticide, it'll kill them. So, And okay. the interesting thing with the systemics is it's usually going to be present in both the woody tissue as well as the foliage. So you're going to be able to control the larvae that are below the bark as well as the adults that are going to feed uh-huh. on the foliage after they emerge before they go to lay eggs again. Interesting. Um, one of the other really interesting uh, approaches to management is called injection. So you actually have a system where you drill small holes kind of at the base of the tree where the root flares are. Um, and generally you want to use the root flare because that's going to give you the best distribution of the product into the tree. Um, if you were just to try to drill like anywhere randomly on the tree, you're less likely to get it to spread through all of the different xylem channels that you may reach through the root flare. Right. Um, Especially there's if there's a product disruption. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's yeah. the thing is the further along the damage is, the harder it is to get that product into the tree. Yeah. Um, but that's a, a product called imamectin benzoate. And that one's actually not so bad. Um, it was developed from a soil bacteria. So it's kind of an interesting story of how that one was developed. But with the soil drenches, you tend to get about one year of control. With the injections, with the other product, you tend to get about two years of control. Um, so those are the kind of the general approaches that we use right now. Um, it's pretty interesting the things that are kind of coming down the pipeline. Like the USDA has been working aggressively with rearing biological control species. So these are like small non-stinging wasps that'll attack either the eggs or larva. Um, yeah. And while that can help reduce, yeah, yeah, they can help reduce population, uh, reduce populations, but they're not going to necessarily be something that's incredibly effective at killing all of the, you know, the insects that might be out there. Right. But I mean, Maybe I'm misunderstanding. This sounds like a pretty, forgive the lumber pun, cut and dried solution. Um, You know, it seems like it it works. So why is EAB so out of control? Because, I mean, you may want to protect a handful of trees in your landscape, but you can't possibly treat all of the ash trees that are present in the entire area that this pest has basically moved to. Um, So especially in a forest setting, it would be, you know, logistically impossible to do injections on all of the trees in a forest. Um, And if we were to try to do a soil drench with the other product, we would be, you know, drenching entirely too much product. You know, you'd be getting plants absorbing this material that shouldn't be. Um, And then you have, like, all again, all these cascading effects that are happening because you can't necessarily keep it restricted to just one plant. And that's one of the benefits of the injection is you get it directly into that one tree but this is a process you would need to do every two years on every host that's within the range of that pest. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. So quickly, quickly becomes, uh, <laughs> wow. but if you had one tree in your yard that you wanted to maintain, whether it had sentimental value or it was just a tree you wanted to keep, you know, you absolutely can keep it alive, but you're likely going to have continual pressure. Yeah. Okay. Well then that leads me to kind of my next point because the reaction that I'm seeing is, you know, maybe not clear cut, 
Um, well, actually, before mm-hmm. we jump into that, what is it about this particular bug? Like, why the ash tree? And why did they leave, like, the oak tree and the beech tree and the cherry tree around it alone? What is it specific to the ash tree? Yeah, and I mean, and that's the interesting thing with insects is they've been around on the planet for so long that they've adapted to really about every environment that we have. So in the native range of this pest um, in Northeast Asia, it actually has a pretty close association with the an ash species there that's a little more tolerant of the pest because, again, they evolved together. So when this pest found its way to the U.S., you know, it's in a, a tree that it'll tolerate. You know, it's familiar with ash, you know, whether that be biochemistry or just as a host acceptance kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But our ash were not prepared for this pest, so they don't have the mechanisms in place to to manage it or to at least survive some of the attacks. So whatever it is, however it tastes <laughs> to them, <laughs> you know, the oak just doesn't taste the same. Or maybe they're afraid of the powder post. Maybe it's like a gang war thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, and then that's the thing is they just evolved together for so long that they have that really close association. And that tends to be the case with a lot of insects. You know, there are some generalist species out there that will attack a bunch of different things. But, you know, mm-hmm. being able to defend yourself against the defenses of uh, an oak tree are going to be very different than what you may need to defend yeah. yourself against, say, an ash tree. And I'm, I'm probably anthropomorphizing a fair bit here. Like just because I'm aware <laughs> that there's a cherry tree next door does not mean mm-hmm. this little bug inside an ash tree knows that there's a cherry tree next door. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, so. And they're just not attracted to it. So they, they will feed on pretty much all of our ash species um, and they will attack white fringe tree as well. Um, but they mm-hmm. tend to not be as interested in that. And they don't often cause mortality in the fringe tree because they don't tend to hit it over and over. Whereas with an ash tree, once the adult has emerged, it may keep laying larvae in that same tree over and over and over. So then all of a sudden you have this like amplifying right. effect of several generations. Yeah. And that is their ecosystem. There's no reason Absolutely. To, to look for another another buffet. It's interesting. I didn't know about the fringe tree because I actually have a fringe tree um, on my yard. <laughs> I don't have any ash, but I do have a fringe. Uh Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. I'll, I'll yeah. keep an eye out. So um, this leads me to my other point, the reaction that I'm seeing and what of course has brought it to the attention of, you know, uh, my industry and my listeners is, is the lumber side of things, because um, it sounds like it's, it's maybe not easy, but there are solutions to treat that tree, you know, in your yard. Mm-hmm. But when you have an infestation and very recently in my neighborhood, in an area where I, you know, walk my dog all the time, this beautiful shady forested path is now bright sunshine because mm-hmm. they have removed, I would say a hundred ash trees. Um, the beaches are still there. Um, there's one or two oaks, but it is, it, it I, I don't know the, the, the area, but it was about a mile circular path through the woods and it was always in dark shade, you know, complete forest canopy throughout and now it's in full sun the entire time um it was all ash trees they're all gone um and that was well i mean it was upsetting (laughs) certainly um Mm -hmm. the part that upsets me is you know certainly that's the path that i used to like to walk on now it's just really really (laughs) hot um but the lumber guy in me is like first of all i love ash like my workbench Mm -hmm. is built out of ash i've built so many pieces of furniture out of ash it's a fantastic wood to work and i and i saw how they logged it. And I saw like the buck, um, they had bucked them to length. This was not cut for lumber. These were cut down Mm -hmm. to move and get out of there. So it was like, from my understanding, the bug is leaving the heartwood and most of the sapwood alone. It's in the cambium and that's pretty much it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally speaking. Yeah, so this is is a a destruction of, of a bunch of trees, which... My, my knee-jerk reaction is, isn't there a better way? Um, and it sounds like maybe there isn't. Like, maybe we just haven't figured it out yet. Like, if you have, 
you know, let's just say an entire acre of ash trees that mm-hmm. is um, infested or, well, like say half of it's infested um, and you mm-hmm. remove the first half, what are the chances of the other half getting it? I mean, well, I mean, there's a really strong. good chance there. Yeah, there are probably already larvae in the other trees as well. They just haven't right. progressed far enough for you to see those symptoms because, again, you okay. don't really see the symptoms until a fair amount of damage has been done, which is, again, one of the harder parts of dealing with this pest. But right. I would say pretty much without um, without reservation, if you've got you know an ash tree in an area where the insect is present, it's just a matter of time. Hmm. Um, because again, they, they may try to attack the smaller saplings that are, you know, regenerative species, you know, at the, at the ground level, they'll try to attack those if there's nothing else. Like obviously they're going to prefer the stressed host, the larger trees, they tend to be easier to invade. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can persist in these little regenerative growth, um, areas as well, which means that you're getting dispersal kind of across time and space. And then consequently, you're just keeping this pest persistent in an area for longer. Right. So, yeah, it sounds like I mean, I, I still feel like in some instances it's a bit of re- over, overreaction, but maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's, you know, we have to draw a line in the sand and say, stop the, stop the spread here. But once you fell the tree, the bugs are still in the cambium layer. If you then, mm-hmm. let's just say, okay, now we've got this tree. We are going to saw it for lumber. Cause let's, let's be real. The morphology of an ash tree is a nice straight bowl. It's it's perfect lumber wood. It doesn't branch early like an apple tree or a walnut or something like that. Well, walnuts depend on how they're managed, but it is a lumber tree. Um, so when they take these down and say they do actually use them to saw them into, into lumber, you're still debarking it somewhere. You're, you're removing that, um, bark and that cambium. What happens to the bugs there? So let me, let me continue here in my particular case study. (laughs) All of the, you know, they felled the trees and they limbed them immediately. Um, so there were just huge piles of slash um, laying about. And they're still there a month and a half later. Um, I'm not really sure where the fire marshal is in this whole thing, but um, let's just say I'm glad my house doesn't border it because there's still piles yeah. of slash and we're getting into the warm summer months. But then there's also huge sections where you can actually see where the tree was felled and there's there's bark and things on the ground. And then they've also where they bucked the log, you know, as you buck it to a short section, bark will start to come off and that stuff is laying on the ground. So aren't the bugs still there? Like, what do you do about that? It seems to me yeah. just felling the tree sometimes may not be enough. And absolutely not. Yeah. Generally the approach is, you know, the, the wood may still be usable. Um, but what tends to happen is those outer edges would need to be chipped down very finely so that you don't have those larvae or pupae continuing to develop in those areas. Cause I mean, at least in the case of if you, you know, chop the tree down and left it be larva mm-hmm. could continue to move out from there. Um, and actually okay. he, the human, we have been very effective at moving this pest around. If you take, you know, ash wood that happens to be infected, you know, when you go camp and use it as firewood, uh, you may very easily, bring that pest to a new area. And that's actually been one of the big factors of how it does long distance dispersal is human movement of firewood that they didn't realize was infested because you may not even really see what's below the bark if you don't peel it away. Sure. Sure. So, okay. Um, Well then, um, in, in one of my other, in my, my lumberman's outrage saying, I can't believe they're mulching this tree. (laughs) That actually may be the best solution then. Now mulching the whole tree. I don't know. Like, um, uh, debarking is, is a pretty common thing that we do mm-hmm. in the lumber industry, but you still have to, these days anyway, there's nobody out in the woods with a bark spud pulling the bark off. They're taking it and they're peeling it. So there is a transportation that's happening there. And if you have, you know, transportation bands, do they have that for 
ash borer. I know for canker, thousand canker, they, we've got um, uh, cross state. We've got um, what's the word I'm looking for? Segregate quarantine. Like quarantines. quarantines. Yeah, um, and, and some of those are in place. Post. Yeah, some of those are in place, but the USDA has also kind of shifted gears and they've kind of accepted the fact that this thing is moving and now they've switched to spending the money on finding out ways of managing it. So whether it be that okay. biological uh, organisms or just trying to manage the stands that they have. Right. Hmm. So, okay. I mean, the other um, thing, yeah, I would say the other thing that's worth considering too is just the, as the insect is actually boring through the wood and killing those upper branches, they become brittle. And that's actually something from a tree climber's perspective. We don't recommend to have our folks climbing ash trees if there's even a hint that there could be EAB because that tissue mm -hmm. becomes very uh, easily broken. So if someone were trying to climb up into an ash tree that is infected, I'm sorry, infested, uh, you very likely could break a branch out and have somebody fall. So the, oh, wow. the liability concerns of, you know, this tree could just start dropping branches, it could fail, and what that could do to the folks that are, you know, walking that path, like you said, uh, not really a risk yeah. that's worth taking. So getting rid of them is certainly better than having a giant limb fall down. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm coming around. I mean, and, and let's just <laughs> add a wrinkle to this. This was on the property of a private school. Um, and this mm -hmm. path was a path that like cross country teams ran on. I mean, it was also a neighborhood and path and things, but it was owned by the school. And we know that it was the school that, that hired, um, this, this was, it was actually an Amish sawmill that came out and took all the stuff down. So, you know, my, my immediate outrage was over, I'm standing in the sunshine when I used to be in the shade before. Um, <laughs> and then my, my lumber was like, oh my God, there's no, there's no boards coming from this, but this uh -huh. is a tough one. This is really one that, cause I've heard so many people like, no, no, nope, slash and burn. That's the only way to deal with it. And then others like, yes, but it's not getting into the wood at all. But you know, it's not quite that easy. Um, if you had a mobile sawmill and you came out, mm -hmm. um, and, and sawed it on site, you still have to make sure you're getting rid of that cambium layer and, and, and I guess mulching it or burning it maybe. Um, yeah. Because if you're mulching, yeah, it's got to be really mulched, right? Like really fine, yeah. like finer than most Usually of the Usually within that ice. one inch. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I've also heard that like once you mulch it, like the composting effect, like the heat that builds up there can mm -hmm. kill them. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That can so usually help for a lot there. of different problems. Yeah. Okay. So it does sound to me like if we want to actually save the heartwood or even the sapwood and turn it into lumber, you've got to make sure that you're getting rid of the cambium, but you're also not like transporting that cambium layer to other areas because then you're actually making the problem worse. So this is an on-site debarking, sawing. But here's the other thing, like the popular way that a lot of these mobile sawmills deal with is through sawing or live edge slabs. Um, so now you've still got the bark and the cambium attached to that live edge slab. And that's very in vogue. Um, you know, everybody wants to sell live edge slabs. Well, guess what? <laughs> You've got bugs in that live edge slab. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is definitely not as cut and dried as I was making it out to be. And it does explain a lot of the, for lack of a term, clear cutting or selective clear cutting that I'm seeing. So other yeah, than, please go ahead. Well, I was going to say, too, that you have to consider how long the insect has been present in the tree, because if you've got a significant amount of dead wood in there, you could also have decay. So the quality of the wood that you'd extract from it may not be very high unless you were ah. to get it at an early infestation. So if it's a tree that's True. been in decline for three or four years, it's really hard to say what kind of quality you're going to get out of there. So you might be able to get some from deeper in the interior of the actual trunk itself, but toward the mm -hmm. edges, it's going to start to get very brittle and decayed. 
Actually, that's a really good point because ash in general is known uh, for uh, butt decay. Um, I have listeners snickering right now, I'm sure, but um, <laughs> where, you know, as you fell the tree, you'll find those huge hollow rotten sections right in the center down at the, at the buttress section there. Um, and you'll get like, as the tree, as you're starting to saw, saw through it and the tree begins to fall, it will actually like snap and like this huge spear will be left on the stump because it's, it's this rotten section, like the center of the tree is actually hollow. Um, I'm not sure exactly what, why in the ash tree that is. I haven't looked into it enough, but it is one of those things that you can, um, you can point to and say, oh, that was an ash tree because you can see that the, the butt decay that was there. I guess that's, that's interesting because most of us, we think of heartwood as heartwood is already dead. Um, that's not the living part of the tree. So if it's the, uh, the, the outer part of the tree that's being affected, certainly that's what, that's the, the living part, the, 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 the nutrients are being disrupted. It's, it's unusual to think that the lumber part of the tree would be affected, but I, I, I think you're absolutely right. There could be real problems if it's been there for multiple years and this tree has been stressed for multiple years, that could be a real problem. Hmm. Yeah. And any damage on the outside gives an opportunity for those different decay fungi or bacteria to get in there and get to that more interior region. So, I mean, a lot of the times when you have that big areas of decay on the inside, it's because they've found a way in somewhere mm -hmm. uh, and damage through the bark and damage to the cambium tissue is a perfect way for them to get in. Right, right. You know, we were, t we're talking about the emerald ash borer. Well, the emerald ash borer is making the tree <sighs> stress, which makes it, you know, prone to attack by a thousand other organisms in other words exactly <laughs> wow poor ash trees now i feel really bad for the ash trees well this is this is um this is not the way that i wanted this conversation to go this is this because i've got a lot of people who are screaming chestnut blight and um mm -hmm. other people who are being very dismissive like yeah you know people have been saying it's the next chestnut blight for 10 years um and, you know, we're still getting ash trees and we are still getting ash trees. I, um, it's not a, a species that I regularly stock, but it's a species that I do special orders for all the time. Um, that's more an economic thing than uh, a shortage thing. There are still a lot of mills producing ash and a lot of ash flooring being produced. So, uh, you know, it's hard to get too upset about it. But when you look at the science and when you look at, at, at your level of things and how we treat it and how we identify it and the, po the possible problems of using the lumber, it's kind of scary. So do you have any thoughts on the outlook and like the long-term management of this? How do we prevent this from going the way of the American chestnut? I mean, really, there's... Yeah, I mean, really, it's tricky. And, you know, when you think of like the chestnut or the elm, you know, you've got a fungus problem. You know, when you think of emerald ash borer, a variety of other, you know, hemlocally adelgid, things like that, you've got insect problems. I mean, there's a ton of different things kind of happening that are attacking, you know, huge populations of native tree species that we have. Um, and it's pretty unfortunate because, I mean, even with EAB, you know, it's in Oregon now. So it's attacking, you know, the ash species that are over there. Um, and it's going to likely continue to spread because we've we've gone past the point of eradicating it. So it's here to stay. And, you know, maybe we'll be able to develop, you know, an ash species that's more tolerant, maybe kind of based on <clears throat> some of the genetics from the Asian populations. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say how effective that can be. Um, yeah. There's some new technologies that are coming out. Like there's a couple universities working on an RNAi product um, that's kind of interesting. It just disrupts the cellular uh, processes of the insect. So it's very specific to just this insect. Um, so you kind of reduce some of the impacts that you might have from traditional pesticide use. Um, but again, treating every single tree is, is probably unlikely. Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate because, you know, we've got this happening to ash, you know, the hemlock because of the adelgid, 
Um, there's actually an emerging issue. I know you mentioned beach along that path that you walk. Um, there's a small little nematode, which is kind of like a small microscopic worm that's going to cause a whole lot of problems for the beach in the Northeast. So we're going to start to see huge wow. population declines there as well. So you know, when we start to lose these, you know, really keystone species, you know, it starts to have impacts on, you know, water temperature, um, any number of other things that, again, are just going to continue to ripple out through the different trophic levels. Wow. You're a ball yeah. of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting because we can protect some species, you know, again, valuable landscape plants, or if you, you know, just had a, an area that you were able to you know, get somebody out there, make these applications, do these treatments and protect them. But I don't know what it looks like once we've, you know, fully expanded the range of these different species, um, when there's not hosts next to each other and they can't just readily move, you know, maybe we'll start to have, you know, localized population death of some of these really bad pests. Um, right. and then maybe there can be recovery. It just depends on how, how well they're dispersing from the areas where they persist for longer. So it's yeah. really hard to say what these things look like in the later stages. I mean, at least from Chestnut, you know, it, it didn't look very great. And there's some promising, you know, leads now with some of these new varieties that they've developed. Mm -hmm. um, but really, there's not a way to manage it on a scale that would save forests, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah, I'd, I've read quite a bit on some of the cultivars of Chestnut lately that look very promising. But, you mm -hmm. know, I think nobody thinks that it's ever going to return to the king of the forest that it was before. And for that matter, well, the interesting thing about elm is elm was, uh, if I remember right, elm is not native. That was like a, uh, it was like a Victorian introduction. And it was like, Hey, this is a beautiful tree and it grows super fast. And they just overplanted the crap out of it. And then, uh, a tree grows in Brooklyn, I believe was based around Dutch elm disease. The book tree grows in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and that like, over the course of 10 years, it was just gone. Um, but the chestnut, chestnut was, you know, old growth. And even though you're still getting chestnuts sprouting out there, you know, they get to a certain age and then there it is. It's still there. Yeah. Um, and it takes them down after about a year. It's really, it's very, very sad. But it is interesting that the thought that maybe possible, for lack of a better term, safe zones, you know, as it runs its course, um, maybe you'll have these little islands. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of like yeah. the show, the walking dead or something like small walled <laughs> civilizations, you know, where, where people are keeping the zombies out, but man, mm -hmm. it is, it's really upsetting. Now I I've spent a lot of time lately talking to local Sawyers and investigating kind of urban logging and what this does to the overall business structure and kind of the, the, economics of the lumber industry because for the longest time lumber was a local business it's moved to a global distribution huge you know billion dollar industry but we're seeing people kind of moving back whether it be for political concerns environmental concerns or just like they they like the story that i'm building this out of you know grandpa's tree or whatever there's more local woodlot management going on and it sounds like there are treatments on a local level. So mm -hmm. like you were saying, you know, if you're taking care of your trees and you're engaging the services of a company like Bartlett Tree Experts to, to make sure the, the, the trees on your property, and while it can be difficult to treat at a forest level, if you have a woodlot with maybe 12 ash trees on it and some other species, that does seem, well, let me ask you this. Do you think there's a threshold? Like, if we go in and treat, say, the drench treatment, the soil drench treatment, um, mm -hmm. like where 
where is it too much? I guess if I've got 12, 12 trees over, I don't know. Uh, I guess that's what it comes down to is over what, what kind of density we're talking about. 12 trees over, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> a couple hundred square feet might be too much, but do you have any concept of, of where that, where that line is when it becomes too much drenching? Yeah. And it, it really kind of goes back down to economics a little bit as well, because I mean, a, okay. a lot of the pesticides that are available, you know, have rules and regulations for how much can be applied over a given area. So that's all, you know, uh, very concrete, very clear. Um, and at least like with the injection, for instance, in contrast, um, that's generally going to be a little easier because you know you're getting it directly into the tree and there's way less of a chance of any kind of impacts happening outside of the tree. Mm -hmm. um, but the caveat would be, you know, how expensive is it going to be to do this every two years? It's, you know, a complicated oh, process, right, right. you know, expensive chemistries. Um, every single, you know, every two years, at least for the injections, one year for the drenches, you know, it starts to become kind of a challenge and it just depends on how much value those trees have over time, whether that be for, you know, milling or anything else. Right. Um, um, and I, I certainly don't want to put you on the spot here, but can you give us some idea of like a costs associated with this? If I have a tree, um, that has a, has a problem and say it's, it's either injection or drenching could work. Are, do you have any kind of gross estimates. No one's going to hold you to it, I promise. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like it's going to vary. Um, it tends to be yeah. that the the drench option is an older chemistry, so it's a little cheaper. So like, usually the active ingredient there is uh, metacloprid, um, which is one that you can even buy like at Home Depot, for instance, in some states. Um, so that one tends to be a little cheaper. The imamectin benzoate tends to fall into a category where it's harder to get. Um, so you're going to have to have a professional apply it. So then you've got the cost of the actual application as well as the product. So it can add up pretty quickly. Um, and yeah. again, I, I don't do that side of things. I'm not on the sales sure. side, so I couldn't give you That's a raw fine. number. Um, but again, That's it's fine. not going to be it's not going to be super cheap because again, it's a slightly labor intensive process and again, expensive chemistries. So it's complicated, yeah. but it certainly is something that if you weren't managing, you're you're probably going to lose the trees, especially right. if you're in an area where you know that the pest is present. So it kind of has that right. that balance of, you know, again, as you mentioned, like if it's your grandfather's tree or whatever, you know, you may want to invest more time in protecting that particular one. Um, and the other thing, too, is, I mean, if, if you're treating a tree that has an early infestation or you're just starting to see that decline, it's much easier to keep that tree happy and healthy. If you've, you know, trying to do this remedial treatment on a tree that maybe has been infested for three or four years, you might be able to keep it alive a little longer, but there's likely such extensive damage that even treatments may not really save it. You may just kind of slow that death. Um, yeah. So really kind of catching it early or being preventative is, is very important for EAB. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important for listeners to understand kind of how a tree grows. You know, it, we've all heard the idea that, you know, it lays on a new layer of growth every year and you can count the growth rings to see how old the tree is, but it's not like it's really necessarily rebuilding these damaged xylem phloem channels. It's just adding another layer to the outside of new xylem phloem channels. Um, it's not really, and, and over time, those those deeper layers are essentially turned into heartwood. That's not the living part of the tree. So the tree's response to this is not trying to repair what's been damaged. So for instance, you do the treatment, you kill the bugs that are in there. The tree's not really going back and fixing those disrupted channels. It's responding by laying on another channel. Um, so the damage is kind of always there. Uh, at least that's my understanding anyway. Um, 
Yeah, and as it's laying out that response growth, it's kind of doing it from the edges. So it can't just, you know, lay a flat sheet on top of that damaged area. It has to kind of come in from the sides. So it's a slow process. And I mean, it can be very effective if the damage is, you know, minor. But if they've been having these serpentine galleries and they've kind of covered an extensive area, it could take some time for the tree to fully seal that over and actually, you know, get full distribution of nutrients back up the canopy. Right. Wow. This is not getting any better. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's it's well, definitely a tricky one. Well, it does it de- certainly does explain why, you know, there's so many people who are comparing it to chestnut and so many people who are getting upset about this. Um I guess uh you know, I I will keep my eye out for larger scale treatments, you know, the 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 predatory insect wasp thing seemed like kind of a cool mm-hmm. idea cuz certainly, you know, this is this is a bug that's native to to Asia and it's not causing a blight out there. So how do we you know, how do we emulate what's going on there without, of course, introducing another issue at the same time there and lies the rub, I mm-hmm. suppose. But hopefully we can kind of, I don't know. Uh, it, it just seems so funny because when you look at the history of, of, of chestnut or, or um, well, uh, I wanted to say the uh, pine beetle, but that was kind of a different story. When you look at any of these <laughs> large scale blights, they all were kind of like back in the 19 aughts, you know? It's like, here we are, it's 2023, we ought to figure this out. And it, it still seems like, you know, we probably could solve it, but at what cost? Like, how many other yeah. things are we going to kill? You know, you can't just like, you know, fly one of those like firefighting airplanes over a forest and just dump pesticide because that's going to wipe everything out. And the ash trees will be happy, but actually the ash trees may die anyway because of the yeah. mycorrhizal network that you just wiped out that they're dependent upon. So, yeah, it's really... Um, I don't know. It's very humbling. Like we get so proud of ourselves and the technology we've created, but um, we still are kind of helpless at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's I a complex ecology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's all those different interplaying factors. And I mean, even if we were really good at finding these insects, I mean, they're also really good at attacking their hosts. So it's always kind of this back and forth battle. And I mean, you may be able to kind of keep it restricted to some areas, but inevitably, whether the insect moves on its own or whether we move materials, you know, unintentionally, which is, I mean, how it really got here in the first place. I mean, right. it's kind of a process that there's some inevitabilities and just kind of working with what we can. And again, trying to breed those more resistant, you know, varieties, introducing some different control options that might try to keep it in check and at least keep it from being a huge outbreak. But certainly right. the distribution and, you know, the composition of our forests are going to change over time. So for better or worse, we kind of have to figure out how to move forward with that, I guess. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Dr. Sloan, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Um, and certainly uh, if anybody out there is, you know, Got a got an ash tree that's starting to have problems. I think you've got a clear understanding of who to call at this point, um, <laughs> and it's it's not necessarily your tree removal company. There could be a solution here that could help your specific tree. And I suppose if if we can do it from that level, from the neighborhood level up, um, maybe again those safe zone type things could happen. Now, certainly, it's an ongoing treatment, but uh, it still it seems like there there at least is a solution at a grassroots level, maybe not at a forestry level. Maybe we'll keep working on that. But I really, really appreciate your time. I appreciate the the information. This has been uh, definitely the previously I was good with caddisflies, stoneflies, and mayflies, and what trout were eating them. So <laughs> I've definitely gotten a little bit better understanding here. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you.